今聞いてるのはアンクルイードのポッドキャストみんなブリブリで楽しんでいきましょです。But there's all the conundrums associated around it and blah, 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 which I'll, I suppose I'll get into. It's, it's actually, I have no idea what's coming. You know, I've been waiting for an afternoon with nothing on the agenda and, <laughs> and a desk、uh, and a microphone to sew this episode <laughs> together. <laughs> and it's taken since 1996. A cassette tape from an AM radio to do this.、Um, the short version is. AM radio in Guam talking about、uh, my industrial hemp products and then medical marijuana and now recreational cannabis. I'm using these words <laughs> interchangeably because I've done absolutely no preparation. But damn it, today is the day that this podcast will be completed. I have no internet access. It's a, it's a hot day in February. I got a cup of tea and a smoke. Shall we then? A journey spanning decades, continents, islands, 
<laughs> blah, blah, blah. Ten minutes in front of nine o'clock. I'm Kelly Crane, your gracious hostess, and uh, we got a special guest in here. We got uh, Dave. Yeah. Dave, what's your last name? I don't have a last name. Special Dave. Special Dave from, from Uncle Weed Emporium. <laughs> just call me Uncle Weed. Uh, okay, Uncle Weed. I don't think you can just call me Uncle Weed. <laughs> Very cool. All right, um, do you have? I see you got some information out there uh, in front of us. How long is? I want to ask you a few questions about the legal ramifications of having. Uh, cannabis and and things like that. Um, now, no, we know all know marijuana is legal. Is it legal? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and bad. Um, well, not bad, but just illegal. Uh, and how long? Is, I know back in the back in the twenties. Up until then. Well, up until the, the early. <laughs> you do the talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, up until the uh, the early forties, uh, hemp was used for almost everything in uh, in North America. Everything. I, it was I, used for everything. Oh, yeah. It was used for clothes and not just rope. Because people, you know, make that. Well, paper sails. I mean, the boats that Columbus and Magellan sailed around, you know, did their voyage on. All made of hemp. The ropes were made of hemp. Um, uh, Henry Ford was making cars like the body panels out of hemp, building materials for hemp. You everything. can make a car out of hemp? Yeah, I got I got pictures and just pictures in this book. And uh, I mean, just everything. It's just remarkable all the stuff they're using it for. Then, uh, then they went ahead and they, they said, okay, now this is bad. And what they did, was, the reason the term marijuana came out, because if the, if the, um, the government started telling all the farmers, hemp is illegal, and they go, what? Hemp? What are you, what's hemp illegal for? So they said, it's this weird Mexican term. Marijuana is a, just a Mexican word for uh, for cannabis, for hemp. Is that all? This weird stuff called uh, called uh, marijuana. All the weird people are doing this, and so we got to make this illegal. Everyone's going, "Wow, man, uh, hemp? Well, whatever." And then, as soon after they made it illegal, then they brought it back legal again because of World War II started up. And uh, and at the time when it was illegal in the states, the, the U.S. was importing all the hemp from uh, from the Philippines. Then Jap Japan took over the Philippines, so their hemp supply was cut off. So they came out with this video, Hemp for Victory, and they had all the farmers in the Midwest start growing hemp again. So that's why in the Midwest, you still see a lot of ditch weed in, in uh, Nebraska and uh, Kansas and Illinois. You hear all this kind of stuff about hemp weed, um, the ditch weed, which is just old industrial hemp. And uh, so now, um, I think what's going to happen, like a lot of countries now are, are either tolerating marijuana and also going ahead and going, growing the industrial hemp again. Last year in Canada, they put in seven legal hemp fields, the first legal hemp fields grown in North America in 60 years. Last year, there's a guy in the States, I got this article here, a guy in um, California, and he put in a half an acre, of, and he had everything sanctioned um, by the local government in California to grow a half acre of industrial hemp. It was all monitored, but two or three days before harvest, the, the feds came in and overstepped their boundaries and plowed the whole field under. Plowed the field under and burned the whole thing. Wow. I mean, this is just fantastic. It was 3% THC. I mean, you have to smoke the whole field to get a buzz. And I mean, in California, I don't think there's much of a shortage of uh, better quality smoking that can. I come to you from a goat farm where a typhoon has mildly abated for the time being at least. I'm surrounded by goats having their lunch while I'm having a smoke and I bring you a story from deep in the archive. Indeed, this transmission comes from 1995 on the island of Guam. And I'm going to tell you a few stories and a few things about Guam because like many people who spent time there, you sort of become an evangelist or a storyteller of some way about this uh, geopolitical, geographical anomaly in many ways. And I'm also going to tell you stories to uh, not only inform and edify your brain about Guam, but also to compensate for the fact that this audio that I'm going to share is quite lousy. 
you see this audio comes from an appearance on a radio show which called Deep Cuts, I'll get to that in a minute, uh, that was transmitted over AM radio and re during the power outage. At that time, well, maybe still, uh, the power outages were frequent in Guam because there's these brown tree snakes and they bite up into the cords and the wires. Plus there's frequent typhoons, which I guess the typhoon kind of got me thinking about Guam today. Anywho, uh, the power was out and someone recorded this radio broadcast to a cassette tape from AM radio during a power outage. I got the cassette tape and then, well, it's been sitting in storage in one way or another since 1995. Dug it out a number of years ago. A buddy uh, did a little bit of audio kung fu to it to try to clean it up, but I'm just gonna say it sounds like crap. So I'm gonna break it up into a few chunks and intersperse with some stories about Guam. Cool? All right, let me light a smoke. But, I mean, they're pretty ridiculous, but this year they're going to try it again. They're doing it on native, um, native land in Arizona. They're going to start growing a field of... Uh, Woody Harrelson, is, is the actor, is, is getting involved yeah, in that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's all kinds of people getting involved with it. I've, in some of the hymn journals, I get a uh, quote from Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein and all these, uh, you know, fashion people and all these... Um, you know, there's a lot of politicians and justices. A lot of the, the legal people are totally in favor of legalization because you think of the millions of dollars that's spent on this marijuana trip, you know, incarcerating people $30,000 a year to incarcerate someone for a year, a totally non-violent offender, someone just kicking back to the house. I mean, what's the difference between kicking back and doing that after work and kicking back and with, a, with a couple of beers, you know? And mm -hmm. all that, I mean, what I think it is, is the government hasn't found a way to make money off it. Not everyone wants to make beer at home and so they tax it to death and so people make money. Everyone can grow, uh, grow cannabis at home without much problems. They just, you know, Philip Morris, and we've seen the last couple of years what kind of power that tobacco companies have. Absolutely. Clout. And uh, so they just haven't found a way to make money with it. First of all, for a bit of background, Guam is an island, maybe about 30 miles by 11 miles. Or is that kilometers? And that seems like a small island to most folks who live on the mainland, but that is the largest island in the entire Micronesian region. 
now throughout the Pacific, and it always kind of drives me nuts that world maps chop the Pacific in half. I really think the world map should be split in the Atlantic, no disrespect to the Atlantic, but the Atlantic has scant islands, the Azores and a few atolls where Napoleon was abandoned, St. Helena and so on. Um, not much there. But the Pacific is filled with diverse cultures and interesting islands and all sorts of interestingness. Three main island groups, Polynesia, uh, which includes Hawaii, Tahiti, um, some of the other, Samoa, some of the other ones that you're uh, likely more familiar with, uh, Melanesia, and Micronesia. Micronesia, this, as its name implies, consists of thousands of islands, but you combined all these islands together in one landmass, and it would be smaller than the state, the American state of Rhode Island. However, these islands are spread across an area larger than the continental United States. So you have these tiny little islands. So Guam is the biggest of all of them by, by a considerable margin. So it's kind of the economic um, and transportation hub of the region. Though, uh, and I'll talk about this more later, like going from island to island is quite an arduous adventure. Back in the olden days, people would navigate by the stars, great book called Starship and the Canoe, um, and, and uh, where the bong water, bong tree, bong water, where the bong tree goes. Anyway, there's some books about this you can read about. The ancient navigators would go out on outrigger canoes and they would navigate by the stars and their eyes and their toe and undertake enormous journeys, in some cases going from the island of Yap to the islands of Palau to quarry giant stone wheels that they would bring back to the island of Yap to use as currency. And still to this day, these uh, stone wheels are used uh, as dowries for buying property and, and other significant financial transactions. The value of the stone was determined by the arduousness, arduity, I don't know, of the journey. Rather than a mineral compound or a size or anything like that. But you look at these stones and you think of it, about them bringing them back on an outrigger canoe and you're like, holy fuck. Especially when you fly between the islands and you think, oh yeah, I'm up in the air, I'll be able to see some islands. You go a couple hours without seeing a speck, and then all of a sudden a speck appears and there's a runway on that speck of land and a plane lands on it, wow. Anyway, I digress. So, Guam um, has been in the news a bit recently, and I usually try not to put any kind of date stamp on these, but what geopolitics being what they are, and uh, missiles and whatnot, North Korea, um, Guam floats into the news every so often into the mainstream public consciousness. Yet, day to day, these people live and exist and go about their, their lives and every once in a while break that barrier of public consciousness. Because Guam is a territory or a colony, as it were, of the United States. What I mean by that is Guam, uh, hmm. they elect a congressperson who goes to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives Yet this person, like the representative from American Samoa and a few other places, does not have the ability to vote in the House of Representatives. So remember that thing about no taxation without representation? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's not entirely the case. Um, Guam has its own elected legislature and governor of the island, and they have this kind of awkward relationship with the US. You see, on Guam, there is somewhere between four and six significant US military bases. There's a giant um, Air Force base at the north end of the island that has landing strips big enough for the Concorde, which I saw there, stealth bomber, 
fleets of the, I don't know, the big fucking bombers. I don't know about this stuff. But it's a massive Air Force base at the north end of the island. It's the tip of the spear for the Pacific fleet. There's also a huge, what they call appropriately enough, big Navy base in Apra Harbor. There's also was a naval air station that while I was there was decommissioned and all the housing given to the Guam government who then turned it into government offices. So you'd go to like get a business license, for example, and you'd go into an, uh, an office that was once a condo, uh, like an apartment. So it had a kitchen and a bedroom so you could go up there and take a nap during the daytime, which the civil servants duly availed themselves of. And, uh, and in the early 90s, I was there from like 94 to 96, more or less, the, the government started to decommission this place and build up in Okinawa. Now, US military has some conundrums in Okinawa, so they're, again, building up uh, Guam. There's also um, a, a NASA listening station and uh, a variety of other US government installations on this tiny island. Now, you'd think that this tiny island with those number of bases would be pretty much the whole thing built out, but there's also uh, all kinds of stretches of incredible natural beauty and boonies, uh, which is the local word for the jungles, which are impenetrable. And there's rocky headlands and cliffs and areas of the island that are completely inaccessible, despite it being this relatively small size. You know, you think about your day-to-day -day life and how often is it that you go, you know, like, it's a size of like, smaller than most US counties. How often do you go out of the county? You know, like, so 30 miles is 30 miles, you know? Um, so there's this, big US military presence there, and there's also a massive tourism industry. When I was there, it was primarily Japanese tourists. Now it's mostly Korean tourists, because you can get there from Seoul or Tokyo in less than three hours. So you knock off work Friday, meet the family at the airport, uh, blaze on over for a quick weekend bender, and fly back and be back in the office on Monday. You might want to stay longer. I would recommend it. This is present day Uncle Weed jumping in to say, yes, I know this jumps all over the place and the audio quality is abhorrent, but it's important. So stick with it. Stay for the goats. People, some people try and separate the hemp issue and the marijuana issue, but I think it's too closely intertwined to really do that. I think what's going to happen is the states are going to keep on stalling and stalling. I mean, Bill Clinton, um, you know, he gets in office and, you know, him and Al Gore were, you know, they both were cannabis users at one time and, and they've, they've been pretty much useless at any kind of positive, uh, positive thing. And I think what's going to happen in the U.S. is all these other countries, Canada, um, England's growing hemp now for industrial. Of course, um, Amsterdam, like uh, Holland, is uh, very, very relaxed. Have you ever um, been to the Cannabis Cup? I haven't been to Cannabis Cup. I hope to go this year. I've been to uh, I've been to Amsterdam, and I mean it was, it was remarkable. And I thought before I went there with the tolerant, I heard about it, it was really tolerant, but I thought it was going to be city and nothing gets done, and everyone sleeps in the <laughs> moon and just stumbles down to 7-Eleven. Then, then you fell into the same the, the same stigma, and I'm surprised because. Well, I was young and I was, I was living in America, you know, I was living in Utah at the time, you know, and so you don't hear much uh, positive things about cannabis living in Utah, and I went there, and the town just goes on, some people are interested in it, some people aren't, it's no big deal, people, it's also irresponsible, and the same thing just being down in Palau, I mean, things get done, you know, it's not like it's a big deal, no one gets hurt, and uh, 
And at the end of the day, life goes on, you know. And so, do you uh, believe you believe in legalization of marijuana? Oh, absolutely. I think there's no question. It's time to do it. And uh, I mean, I think it's time for people to start going, stop, you know, hiding behind everything. Going, oh, well, you know, but I can't. I think the first thing that's got to happen in order to save this planet, though, is uh, is for industrial hemp to be for widespread use of industrial hemp. You look at all these things that are. You hear about oil spills. There's even both. I mean, go to Apple Harbor. I'm sure Apple Harbor looks a lot different now than it did years ago. There's oil and crap that's being dumped in here. And if you look at all the things that um, that hemp can be used for, cutting down the rainforest. Where I come from in Canada, there's plenty, plenty forests. And now there's, I mean, there's plenty, plenty clear cuts. I mean, there's no, it's huge acres and acres. There's pieces of land the size of Guam in Canada that are all just clear cut. It's stumps. All it is is stumps. Because they're making paper pulp, which is being made into toilet paper, which to me is ridiculous. That flyer I just gave you, that's printed on hemp paper. And uh, the Declaration of Independence, as we just talked about Bible, it's printed on hemp paper. Why are we letting, cutting down mature trees to make paper when we could be doing something, I mean, hemp grow crops in six months. People have been, hemp grows in every continent on the, on the earth except for uh, the North and South Pole. We could every, literally turn around the rainforest situation tomorrow. so quickly. And um, it's not like, you know, people are thinking, well, it's going to take a couple of years for it to go. My goodness. Last year, they gave out seven legal hemp licenses in Canada. They didn't give out the license. They tried to stall it. They didn't really want to do it. They said, well, we'll just give them the license in May because by then it's too late to plant. Mm-hmm. They've got the license. They planted the next day, planted an acre of, of of hemp in one day. Six months later, harvested 18-foot plants. And um, in Canada, really, Canada's main exports are um, are, uh, are building materials like wood wood products and and, uh, and paper is also wood products. So they're really pushing to replace it with that. I think all these other countries are gonna are gonna be going ahead, and the U.S. is gonna go so tied up in their political garbage that they're not gonna get around to doing it, and they're gonna be left at left behind. Because even in Japan, I have information here. There's a town in Japan. Well, before the U.S. occupation, after the war, it was all, it was yeah. all, uh, it grows plenty, plenty under. See, this town called Miyazaki, which in Japanese means beautiful hemp. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, was, that's pretty close to heaven. And we stayed there for a while, and it was, I mean, it was great. This, this hemp that uh, the backpack is made out of, mm-hmm. it comes from Hungary. And all the Soviet Army uniforms before the Soviet Union broke up all came from Hungary. It was always going to Hungary and Poland, and that's where all the Soviet uniforms were. So the Soviet Union broke up, and all of a sudden you had all these farmers with big fields of hemp and nothing to do with it. So they, some creative people from uh, states in Canada went over and started importing it. And now, it's, I mean, this has only happened the last two years. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's, it's ready to go. I mean, it's, it's there and it's waiting. All it's, all it's waiting for is from, uh, from the politicians. I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, Bill Clinton in college, he was doing it. So, I mean, I think it's time and I think it's, uh, we just got to get, get it together. Okay, we're going to touch on some more politics too and, and, and we'll discuss that. We'll get into that deeper in a little while. Right now, we're going to take a break and uh, we're going to do some MCI time and we're going to come back with Rainy Day Women by the Black Crows right after this. So there's this tourism industry, so there's an area of Guam that's completely built up like a little, I don't know, it'd be like a little miniature Waikiki, I suppose. A big strip of massive resorty hotels along this beautiful bay that's now overrun with uh, tourists and duty-free shops and gun shooting ranges, popular tourist activity. You go in, you pay some money, you get to shoot guns, um, <laughs> if that's your thing. Um, also a strip of massage parlors, strip bars, duty-free stores, Tourist restaurants, malls, and uh, the biggest Kmart, or maybe the only Kmart. I don't know. I don't know the. <laughs> I don't know these things. Um, so, it's a, it's a weird dichotomy. You got all this great nature. You got all this military nest, but you also have a proud local heritage and culture. Now, 
Guam was first impacted by the quote-unquote Western world when the Spanish uh, Magellan came there. And right off the hop, there was an adversarial relationship between the Spaniards and the local Chamorro people. There was the usual colonial things that happen, which uh, it's heartbreaking, so I'm not going to get into too much, but the whole, well, you know what happens to indigenous populations, and it's really, well, it's fucked up. There's no other way to put it. Fast forward a couple hundred years, the U.S. acquired Guam along with the Philippines and Puerto Rico as a concession in the settlement of the Spanish-American War, and the Chamorro people and people of Guam were then put under the auspices of the U.S., and then during Japan's expansionist imperialist period in between the Great War and World War II, uh, Guam was occupied by the Japanese, and then uh, quote-unquote liberated or reoccupied, whichever point of view, whatever terminology you want to use, by the Americans. So it's conundrums. It's worth noting, too, that throughout Micronesia, islands were also occupied by the Germans. The Dutch were more in Melanesia. So the military bases present an interesting conundrum because it brings all kinds of U.S. money and investment into Guam, but also brings all the problems that uh, that brings. Like, I'll put them in the bucket of the lack of self-determination, the dependence on the U.S. for economic survival. And also, you get a bunch of sailors coming in there and partying and yucking it up. And so you kind of get that decadence and hedonism that comes with that. I won't make too much of a statement on, on that. This is your home for the Detroit Show. 20 minutes after 9 o'clock on your Friday nights. It's me, Kelly, in here with you. And we got a special guest in the house tonight. Uncle Boy, Reed is with us. You are special. I'm starting to feel like kind of weird. Well, you are special. Okay. <laughs> and, and you're leaving Ireland. I am. I'm Dave the Stick on. Guy. You might know Dave as Dave the Stick Guy, right? Yeah. Everybody knows you have to do with the stick. Yeah, Every time I've ever talked about you, they went, oh, the stick guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. you oh, make the, the, the colors twirly stick. Yeah, I do those on fire now. You didn't notice I have big missing patches of arm hair. That's because of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you seem to have, like, you know, <laughs> made it through okay, which is nice. Um, when I was there from 94 to 96, I worked a few different jobs. First of all, I was a tour guide on a sort of half-submarine tour boat that would go out into Apra Harbor, which was surrounded by big navy. I would, in Japanese, um, entertain and amuse and educate the guests, also in Korean, it's worth noting, uh, about the various shipwrecks, about the navy base over there. That ship was owned by John Wayne, and uh, right underneath us, there's two ships, one sunk in World War I, one sunk in World War II, that coincidentally landed, sunk on top of each other. So uh, Guam has all kinds of dive sites. This is where I learned to scuba dive. On the submarine tour, we'd come up on the reef, anchor uh, onto a buoy, because you don't want to anchor right under the reef, although people knew. People also fish with dynamite and bleach and all kinds of other destructive activities. So I did that job for a while, but after telling the same joke seven, six, seven times a day for several months, I couldn't stand my own humor anymore. And the guys I worked with, well, it was kind of a bunch of knuckleheads. So I went to get it, I went and had a change jobs and became a teacher of Japanese language at a local high school, JFK High School, John F. Kennedy High School. Uh, but I quickly, be and I taught this kind of colloquial business Japanese, meaning that for young people growing up on Guam, um, at the time, and maybe it's still the case, there was a big problem with ice, shabu-shabu, speed, methamphetamine. 
and a lot of people were tempted into that way of life of using or dealing or whatever. Uh, or else you get a job with the military, some re military or government related thing. The Guam military is, uh, the Guam government rather, is rather bloated by any estimation, and a lot of people do that because, well, it's a good livelihood. Or else the third was tourism. And so I really taught a style of Japanese that would help these young people, this was my objective anyway, to get jobs in tourism. So rather than teaching formal grammar, I was teaching more conversational and functional Japanese, as it were. However, I became a budget cut, and I ended up working for three months for free. Uh, my job was eliminated. I didn't get paid. I went through a whole conundrum with ombudsman and sitting in at the <laughs> superintendent's office. I kind of got fucked. But the worst part was leaving my students because I really developed a bond with these, uh, with these kids. I have some snapshots and some storage locker of these kids, and I really had a wonderful experience teaching them, although it ended in heartbreak. So then I got a job as a, a club host at a private beach club. Now this beach club was quite an anomaly because you know the vans would pick up the guests at various hotels on the hotel strip I mentioned, and then they would go through Anderson Air Force Base. There's a special permit to bring these guests through Anderson Air Force Base and then take them down to this beach. And then because the private beach club itself was landlocked, would load them up onto a six-wheel amphibious vehicle, this old British military vehicle left over from World War II, and take them along the, the headlands and the beach and the on the rocks to this private beach club, which they would be welcomed at by some uh, drummers playing log drums, a staff of oddballs and misfits, including me and a couple other people who did the job of bilingual club host. To say bilingual is almost an anomaly because it was all in Japanese. And so I'd welcome them, uh, tell them the bathroom's over there, there's horse riding, there's, there's four wheelers, lunch is at 12, it's like a barbecue buffet. Uh, and then from there, I started to add some other tours because, you know, I'm that guy who has a little bit of initiative about stuff to do a snorkeling tour because I would see folks going in trying to snorkel and they'd go in against the current, wouldn't know how to put their mask and snorkel on properly. They would be slipping and falling on the slippery rocks. I did all kinds of first aid, including a few that are, uh, well, another story for another time. <laughs> there were some ugly accidents. That, that happened. So I put together a snorkeling tour so I could show people how to do this and go swim and look at the fish and shit. And then I also put together a jungle hiking tour, which is really neat because uh, uh, with some of the local staff there, there uh, we put together a, a traditional Chamorro hut out there. There was also latte stones, which are these stone pillars. They have nothing to do with coffee. They're these stone pillars that houses were once built on top of to, so they wouldn't get flooded out. And we built this traditional hut out there, which also became my smoking lounge. And to think now that daily I took, uh, <laughs> I brought weed through the US military installation seems a little ridiculous, but uh, you know, a guy's gotta do what he's gotta do to keep his mind right for working. So I take these tourists in, uh, in the afternoon and uh, show them the hut, show them some caves where after World War II, and some of these stories are quite well known, where Japanese soldiers wouldn't believe the surrender announcement and stayed living and hiding in caves throughout the Pacific, including Guam, for years, sometimes decades afterwards. So I pointed out some of those caves. There was an unexploded grenade uh, in the crook of a tree that the tree had kind of grown around. And then there's also all kinds of wild animals. There's wild boar. Uh, you know, the Spanish, when they came, had brought all sorts of 
non-indigenous animals, including these big docile sort of oxen called carabao and wild pigs. Uh, and they were fucking wild, man. These things were gnarly. Yeah, they're birds and animals and stuff like that. And I'd take them on this little thing and do the little spiel and try and bring some art and history and culture to the mix rather than just playing on the beach and drinking beer. And not that there's anything wrong with those activities. But, you know, art and culture is kind of my thing, man, and history and all that. Sometimes at this job, they would, there would be groups that would come and camp overnight, like uh, either like a school group or I remember a beach soccer tournament. Or sometimes it would be Japanese TV shows that would come and film. And so I got to meet some famous Japanese actresses. Oh my gosh, lovely ladies. Swoon. And uh, my job was to help and ensure all the Japanese folks, the tourists, were having a good time. Now, now I think of this. Well, you know, back then I thought I could feel my brain atrophying every day a little bit. I was getting stupider dumber by the day it felt like you know you're just out in the sun wearing nothing but board shorts well the other fellows i worked with always called them nampa boys they're always uh flirting with the ladies and setting up dates for the evening but uh you know my situation was a little different at the time and sometimes we do these overnight camps and i would get to sleep in a hammock or in a tent on the beach and i was getting paid hourly for this they would bring a whole tuna up and sashimi up the whole tuna and I would have a plate, like a heaping volcano-sized plate of sashimi, squirt a whole tube of wasabi on it. Quite wonderful. Demolay, except I, I felt my brain atrophying and I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going to turn into a Jimmy Buffett song if I'm not careful. Also, the family that owned this beach resort, they also had the exclusive tobacco and liquor distributorship for these outer islands and you know, bringing alcohol into indigenous populations who aren't accustomed to it genetically, ugh, I felt uh, kind of gross and complicit with being part of that. But that's a whole other story. And I'm not one for jobs lasting more than 18 months anyway, so eventually I bailed on, on this job. So anyway. It's a little bit weird, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a pleasant flashback for me listening to all this despite all the crackle and noise. And by the way, that music was from a guy I worked with on the submarine boat tour who drove the boats. His name was Chris Jacobson, and he had a little four-track analog recorder, and every year he would make a cassette tape, which he would mail out to his family and friends as a festive gift. I've tried to track this guy down and have been unable to do it over this intervening decades. So Chris Jacobson, he's from Rhode Island. Spilt Milk Records was his erstwhile label. If you're listening or if you know him, please tell him hello. This is your home for the Deep Cut Show. It's me, Kelly, and here with you. About 34 minutes after 9 o'clock on your Friday nights. 
Uncle Hemp, Uncle Weed is in here with us. I can never yeah. get that straight. I don't know why. Must be something about that short-term memory loss. Oh uh, yeah, that that might have something to do with it. Uncle Weed is in here with us, and he's going to be at uh, at the Just Pirates Cove. What is it? Is it called the Craft Fair? Arts, Just Pirates Cove Arts and Craft Fair. Arts and Craft Fair, and it's it's going on this Sunday. It's all day long. I want to talk to you a little bit about. Um, about marijuana throughout the world, because you're a world traveler. I am. And uh, I, I'm curious about about the, the legalization factors in the rest of the world. I mean, is, is is marijuana looked upon with such a stigma in other countries as it is as it is in the United States and Guam? Oh, well, every country is different. A lot of places, not such a big deal. Like in, and you got some extremes like um, like Holland, where it's very open, but it, it's so open that it kind of gets a little bit ridiculous where you get... American frat boys going over, oh, right, you know, and high-fiving, and, uh, and, but then in, uh, in some countries, like in Southeast Asia, where it's, uh, I mean, really open use, and, uh, I mean, just the local people, it's just from in British Columbia, um, I got some information about this here, and where I'm from in British Columbia, it's something like, I mean, 20% of the people there use it on a fairly regular basis, there's another statistic I have here, Oxford and Cambridge, these big, uh, highbrow universities in, in England, like, something like 60% of the, uh, the students are regular youth, and these are the future world leaders and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, in most places, it's just there's nowhere, there's very few places where it's where it's it's legal, and there's no law against it. But in a lot of places, it's tolerated. In Palau, it's just very open and very tolerant. It's just no big deal. I think a lot of places, the society kind of keeps it in check. If you're being a moron, I mean, obviously your uh, your uncle tells you, hey, you know, relax. But um, I think uh, in Guam and, and and other places that are involved the United States is there's, there's, um, there's this whole police state this whole uh, this whole trip that uh you know dictating the way the way you gotta live and uh I think the the, the US and uh, and its territories are some of the most stressed out places concerning marijuana that I've ever seen for sure. Um, mm. in Japan there's there's harsh laws against it in Japan but living up in the mountains in Japan there was plenty. If you live in the cities in Japan, there's, I mean, it's, it's a real sketch that deal, but living up in the mountains in Japan, it's very open, it's no big deal. But what I found is almost any country in the cities is kind of a, it's a kind of a big deal, but out in the country, countryside, every place, every country I've ever been, I've seen it growing, just wild people growing in their backyard, people growing in their greenhouse, people, I mean, that's such a big deal. All right. President Dan Weed again to say that, keep in mind, this was 1995-96, where regular folks we're just getting access to the internet. There was a scant amount of information about this kind of stuff on the internet. And this is me qualifying my sometimes ludicrous comments. However, at this point in my life, I'd already traveled to many countries and had uh, enjoyed cannabis in every single one of them. Maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole in my descriptions, or in some other cases, there's tremendous understatement. Who's to judge? Carry on. So anyway. During all this time, I was doing my cannabis activist activities and entrepreneurial endeavors. In that, I was making hemp bags and clothes that were handmade for the most part, as well as chapbooks of poetry printed on tree-free hemp paper. Weren't big sellers, I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, and participating in all kinds of activist activities. I had all kinds of little brochures and pamphlets and educational sheets I'd made in English and Japanese. And me and the mysterious Japanese surfer girl would set up booths at Jeff's Pirate Cove in Talafofo, kind of in the south of the island. This great old, well, speaking in Jimmy Buffett songs, this place like is right out of a Jimmy Buffett song. <laughs> and he would host, uh, Jeff would host craft fairs and, and uh, whatnot. And uh, there'd be bands, and we'd set up a little booth and sell um, 
either handmade or else stuff from a company called Hempies or a company called Hempstead that were making Japanese, uh, uh, sorry, pardon me for a minute. We're making hemp board shorts and surf, uh, surfboard bags and uh, wallets, other things of that nature. And uh, so those items sold quite well. And also at Chamorro Village, which if anyone is listening from Guam, was brand new at the time. This, again, this is the mid-90s. And this was kind of a, a little shopping area built specifically to uh, support local-made products of which I was locally making things. However, I'm obviously not indigenous Chamorro. So it was kind of strange bedfellows, but it was a fun place to hang out because it was cool little architecture and there was a great seafood restaurant there and also a, a jerk chicken Jamaican restaurant there as well. Ah, fond memories. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about this Sunday. Uh, you're going to be there from what time to what time? Um, we'll be there all day. I think it uh, starts getting underway about 9 and probably goes down until the drag gets out of there kicking and screaming. But uh, I've, this will be the third or fourth time we've done it. And it's kind of kind of cool to then on Island Jeff Bar does a real nice job of setting it up. He's got um got the fish telegram, the fiesta food, there's all kinds of neat stuff being sold down there. Guys doing stuff with Eastwood Wood and um I mean every kind of a with Ruby Arts and Craft thing you can think of. They got the um the recorder, there's some like recorder consort group. A bunch of people playing recorders. Wow. And they got um That's fascinating. The, Puggle Bay Reefers, I think they're called. There's something Reefers, which I mean, that's the important thing. But uh, a little band there going on at 1 o'clock. Um, I think it's Bucket 2 to get in. Um, they got a sarong fashion show. And they got um, all kinds of neat stuff. And it's always a nice day to spend down at the beach. And, uh, and especially if you live up on the north of the island. We used to live right down there by Jeff and uh, really enjoy your family. It's pretty kind down there. Indeed. Indeed it is. I love it down south there. Um, well, tell us... Um, Tell us, tell us, okay, so you're going to be there all Sunday, and, yeah. and we'll, real quick, we'll plug your wares. You sell, uh, you sell hemp products. And a lot of people on Guam still don't really know about, uh, know about hemp, and, and uh, I mean, a lot of people in the world don't, and that's uh, kind of what we're trying to do, teach people about it. And it's not where you can see the stuff, you can pick it around, you can feel it, you can see how it feels, and uh, I'll show you my old Grungy hemp stuff, and you can see how well it holds up, and you can, uh, you know, pick up on, definitely, we're going to have some backpacks and hats and stuff like that we got down there. But it's a nice day to spend out, spend out on the beach. We'll have, like, sticks down there where we can try to play my sticks. And if you stay down, if it starts getting dark, I'll light them on fire and you can watch me uh, burn myself. <laughs> yeah, and that'll be fun. All right, well, and then, okay. Well, um, well, let's not tell you what. Let's go into, uh, let's do some commercials right now, and then we'll come back and we'll do some talking heads by request. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, legalization and stuff All like right. that. We'll we'll be, and also, I want to say real quickly here that if you can't make it in on Sunday, or if you're just interested in, and you'd like to get a hold of the catalog, you can call us here at 637-6100, and we can put you directly on Dave's mailing list from here so so that you can, you know, get, you know, you can get booklets once the, once the catalogs yep. are ready to go. We can have them in the mail for you. And you can check them out yourself. All you got to do is call us and tell us. 637 Anyway, along the way, working at the job on the submarine, I was, had to be like a registered, like uh, Coast Guard certified crew member on these things because, you know, there's safety considerations. As part of my spiel, I did the safety briefing, the life jacket and all that shit for the tourists. But uh, of course, after I'd done my piss test, I was ready to smoke some herb. 
so one of my coworkers there, who I will not mention by name because he is the scion of a rather well-known political family and now he serves himself in the US military, uh, quickly became my cannabis compatriot, compadre as it were. And so when it came time to be like, so hey, can you score me a bag? He's like, oh yeah, I'll get you a dollar bag. And I'm like, wow, a bag of weed is a dollar here? This is the best, I'm never, never leaving. It turns out a dollar bag was about two grams of highly compressed, mediocre weed and cost $100. That was not near as, <laughs> that was not near as exciting. But you do what you gotta do, right? You know, I've paid more, I've paid less, I've had better, I've had worse, you know. One thing I've learned about traipsing all over the world is you take what you can get sometimes, you know? He became my compatriot and I, I made friends with some Samoans. You know, it was weird, I'd go down to the beach bars, right? And the local Chamorro dudes and the Navy, military dudes have a tense relationship. And this has gone on for a couple generations because the Navy guys come in and puff out their chest and scamming on the local girls and the Chamorro guys get aggressive about that. And anyway, neither here nor there, but because I was this skinny tan guy with a beard, people like didn't quite know where to place me. Well, he's not military, what the fuck is he, you know? And I always kept an emergency joint uh, behind my ear when people would kind of get a little aggressive and up in my face and be like, no, no, this diffuse the situation and smoke some herb. Herb's good like that, right? And then I made friends with the Samoan dudes and the Samoan guys were uh, King Tana. Tana, he was the um, heir to some royal title in Samoa and worked there as a fire juggler and later taught me his skills and we performed together with me rather unsuccessfully. Turns out no one wants to see a, a skinny howly guy juggling fire when there's a ripped Samoan guy. Much more looks the part. <laughs> Uh, um, anyway, made friends with these guys, um, another reggae band, and, and developed a little community of other like-minded herbalists. And together we would spend splendid times drinking beach drinks and smoking joints. Then I met some other cats, um, some other off-islanders, Howleys, working sort of in a similar situation with, as me, working in scuba diving with Japanese tourists. And some of these guys were weed growers. And one guy in particular, I went into his house that was guarded by the two biggest fucking dogs I've ever seen and went up to the fifth floor of his concrete bunker-like house and saw massive plants hanging from the shower, drying out. I remember purchasing a cola that was the size of my forearm from him for that same $100. So let's just say things progressed in my weed purchasing ability in Guam. I have a photo of this uh, bud somewhere, so you know I'll share that with you if you're curious. And so whenever I would get great crippling weed, and so, so dude's weed was, was really nice, and it's that nice outdoor sativa, sun-grown that I'm very much in favor of and very fond of. It doesn't have to be crippling. It has to be, I like it to be light and bright and get you creative and get you ready for a hike rather than sitting on the couch. But sometimes I would get weed that was just crippling. Whoa, lay it like... I gotta call in work, I'm not coming in today, I'm just gonna lounge on the beach and try to drag myself over into the ocean. And this weed, as it turns out, would come from the island of Palau. And later on, I went to the islands of Palau, but I'm gonna save this story for another time or else this is gonna drag on forever.
I think um, right now, I mean, the, the price of, of cannabis is pretty ridiculous in America, especially here in Guam. I, I, was, I was totally shocked but, um, when I first came on the island. But uh, if they start, if they, they start growing that and they start and they legalize it and the government taxes it, there's big federal deficit we have. I mean, it would just it would just disappear. I mean, I'd do my part. <laughs> what do you? What exactly do you think is, is stopping the legal process from the government has not found the money a way to make money off it? And the the beer, the, the, the breweries and the tobacco companies and the politicians are all as soon as they can figure out a way. All these big these big corporate. You don't giants, think they could put a tax on it? Well, I think they could put a tax on. Do you ever think that marijuana, in just in your opinion, do you ever think that you'll see the legalization of marijuana in your lifetime? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the U.S. is going to keep dragging its feet about it, and I think the rest of the world is going to is going to go ahead and kind of legalize. A good example of this is this European community. A couple of years ago, a lot of the European countries finally went ahead and they made this European community. Negotiations for that, all of you know, Germany and England, they were telling um, Holland, "Well, oh, you got to tighten up your drug laws. You got to tighten this up." And, uh, and Holland said, well, okay, I'll tell you this. If you can find one reason um, why we should do it, I mean, is our crime rate higher than yours? Is our, you know, we have a lot of unhealthy people, our productivity lower? There's absolutely no reason why it should be illegal. If you can come up with a reason, we'll, we'll make it, you know, we'll crack down. Of course, no one can come up with a reason. It's still very open in, in Holland. And just because now there's no borders between the European countries, it's, it's pretty open all around Europe now. And, uh, and I think that will... Other countries will kind of follow that lead, but I think the U.S. is going to keep dragging its heels and keep throwing people into jail. And and uh, for me, I just don't really have much interest in living in the states unless they can kind of relax a little bit about it. But uh, I mean, we do what we got to do, you know. I I, I honestly <laughs> and and I probably shouldn't air my views because no one really cares. But uh, in my opinion, I, I would rather see see marijuana legalized and regulated. Instead of uh, and have the, the the police worrying about more important things. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I, obviously, you you can't put it in Seven Eleven next to the bubble yum, but you know it, it it should be sold. I don't know, maybe maybe in a drugstore, maybe um maybe a pharmacist. Maybe you could buy it over a counter, and you had to be eighteen and show show yeah. ID. In, in a lot of places, um, like where I'm from in Canada, they have like the provincial liquor store, and there's just mm-hmm. you know you can only buy beer beer and liquor in this place. Right. I mean, it could be a similar thing like that. In Amsterdam, it's uh, it's in the coffee shops, and you can't have alcohol and cannabis in the same place. Really? You go in the coffee shop, and they have tea, coffee, and cannabis. You go to the bars, and they have beer. And, uh, I mean, it's all separate. That's another way of doing it. So, anywho, my time in Guam started coming to an end the day Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead died. That was August 1995, and... The news came and hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm a huge deadhead and had been on tour and I'd thought about leaving Guam to go on that summer tour in 95, but I said, ah, I'll go next year. I'll keep here, I got a job, I'm making some money. And it was the first time in a long time I'd made any kind of decent money, right? Uh, of course, Jerry dies, I'm crushed. I quit my job at the submarine that day and went to a candlelight vigil in a park and I had a little bit of herb and roll up a pinner and we're passing it around a little circle as happens. And then two other Howley guys show up. And by that point, I'd been around a while. So I was like, uh, I was, you know, a fucking Howley. Like I was like, I was in with the, the, the club, but these guys were like dorky off islanders. I'm just going to say it. And they started asking questions and, and everyone was like, what the fuck's with the questions, man? And they're like, oh, we work for the newspaper. And I started asking questions about what happened to Jerry, when's the memorial concert, what, you know, because, you know, this was 
1995. There's hard to get information on that. And they're like, and I'm like, wow, how do you know? Because they knew all the answers. And they're like, how do you know all this stuff? And they're like, we work for the newspaper. We have the internet. And I'm like, the internet? And they say, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, words and pictures and comes through phone lines onto your computer. I'm like, computers? Wow, you can do that? And I'm a guy who's always made fanzines and newsletters and poetry chapbooks, and I send out tons of letters and all that. So I was very curious about this internet stuff. So the next day, I signed up for a class and went uh, how to use the internet at the local internet service provider with 9,600 baud modems and Windows 3.1. And I didn't know shit about any of this. I just like, I want to see the part with the words and pictures. I don't care about the trumpet windsock and the TCP IP and the PPP and the pop and the other. Anyways, so I get to the part of the class where we can go look at a web page. So I type in dead.net. And it starts downloading, you know, you know, you sit there, you start loading a web page and you go on and get a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever, have a smoke and come back and the page is still loading. Page is halfway loaded and then bonk, brown tree snake bites into a power line and shuts down power for two days. I had seen the future and it took me several days to see that future again, getting a computer hooked up at home and getting a buddy over an old sea captain who had some interest in the internet and came over and took hours of trying to get this computer configurated to get to the internets. But I saw it and I was like, ooh, my future lays within this internet. It was soon thereafter I made my first website, which was all about the history of hemp in Japan. And I started this project while in Guam. Later it was published in Cannabis Culture, Journal of International Hemp Association, books including Hemp Horizons, Hemp for Victory, uh, and all sorts of, and also versions of it in Heads Magazine. Anyway, that all started in Guam. So there's just, that's the backgrounder. Now, along all of this, I would sometimes make radio appearances, as is my, you know, part of my thing that I do. I show up, I tell stories places, and there's this radio station I became friendly with. They were like the classic rock station. Remember, this was the mid-90s. It was like um, a lot of, like, cheesy dance music and, you know, pop pablum and all this, but there was a classic rock station that started up on an AM station. And I would pop in there sometimes and do a little spiel, make a little funny and do all that kind of thing. And one night, I went to appear on this show called Deep Cuts, hosted by a lady called Kelly Crane, who's one of those classic rock and roll DJs. She had a little bit of the gravelly voice and she was all cool, had frosted tips in her hair. It was all like feathered up, like it was 1985. And we sat together where I told stories and shared edutainment, as it were, about hemp cannabis and all its different forms. So I'm very pleased to take this artifact that, again, has been hibernating in a storage locker in a shoebox. In the aim of personal archaeology, I've dug this out to share with you. Noting, again, that the audio quality is <laughs> well, very substandard. But you know, like here you are, you're in a, like a tropical island. And everyone wants to go to a tropical island. The thing about tropical islands that people don't talk about, you know, uh, telecommunications and communications infrastructure sometimes is kind of suffering. There's your disclaimer. Yeah, I mean, just have a like hit a cool <laughs> or a new port, you know, something yeah. that you know. Yeah, yeah. it's just um, 
it's just it's like the the coconut food, you know, like uh you you pick a coconut, you can eat the meat, you can eat the juice, and it's uh, it tastes like a coconut. You take a piece of the coconut tree bark or coconut tree um, leaf. It's not gonna. I mean, you cannot eat that, obviously, right? Right. Same kind of thing with the hemp plant. You take the flowers off it, which is like the coconut, and that's what people are using for smoking the stock. You know, it's just like the coconut tree. You're using that to make a house, or you're using the leaves to make, you know, a hat or making your house. It's the same thing with the hemp plant. You're using the stock to weave the cloth and make the fiber. But also things like from the seed, people are compressing the seed and taking the oil out of that to make um, everything from like massage oil to like cooking oil. Um, to uh, like oils for like making paints and varnishes, to, to making things like uh, ethanol, which is used to run cars on. I mean, it's, it's well, a few years ago when I first started finding out about hemp, I thought, well, yeah, it sounds cool, but <laughs> I didn't really know about it. But now the stuff I've been bringing in and the stuff I've been making myself and traveling around the world, learning about hemp, and uh, I mean, it's remarkable all this stuff. That's I mean, fascinating. Yeah. We're going to touch on a bunch more of these subjects, and if you got any questions, you can call us, and uh, we'll try to answer them for you. It's 637-6200, other numbers here. Doing this one for you, too. This is the Dave Matthews Band, the new one. This is my brother, Dave. <laughs> Very cool. Too much. Two guys named Dave. The all-newest for 61. That is too much. So 61, this is your home for the Deep Cut Show. It's about uh, 20 minutes in front of 9 o'clock. I'm Kelly Crane, your gracious hostess. And the Deep Cut Show is brought to you by the fine people down there at Primo Surf Shop. If you got the guts, baby, they have got the gear. Now, we're going to check in with the phone lines here. We've got uh, we've got someone on the phone lines that would like to speak to you, Dave. Dave is down here from Uncle Weed Hempery. And we've got Laura Lee on the on the line. She'd like to, like to speak to Dave. Laura? Hello. Oh, excuse me. Wait a minute. One button. Laura, are you there? I'm there. I'm there. I'm oh, hello. <laughs> the thing that I wanted to know about hemp is, I understand that it's kind of this rough, scratchy stuff. Is, is it in other weights, too? Um, you see all kinds of different stuff. Right now, there's two countries that are doing hemp for export. Um, there's China and Hungary. The stuff that's coming in from Hungary is a little bit uh, coarser and heavy-duty. And it looks coarse, but it's soft. You can even, just from your backpack, you can kind of feel how that feels there, Kelly. Yeah, I have, mine is real soft. And then, I really like mine. And, but then the stuff that comes in from China, it's coming in all kinds of weights, everything from a hemp silk blend, which is really, uh, I mean, it's really light and soft, and people even making lingerie out of it. Oh all the way to, like, heavy-duty, um, I mean, big, beefy, burly stuff that people are making shoes out of. Um, shoes and hiking. See, I thought when you were talking about shorts, surf shorts and stuff, I thought they'd be all scratchy. No, no, they're nice and soft. Stuff? I thought they'd be all scratchy. <laughs> well, we thank you very much for your call, Laura. Thanks. Good show. You have a nice evening. Bye. Bye-bye. It's bad religion. So now let us discuss Guam in current days. As I mentioned, Guam is a U.S. territory. There's a congressperson. The congressperson doesn't get to phone Congress. So in some ways, it's like Puerto Rico or even Washington, D.C. The reason I bring up Washington, D.C. is Washington, D.C. also voted by a referendum to legalize um, medical cannabis and then recreational cannabis. However, the District of Columbia is, while they have their own mayor and so on, they're under the auspices of the U.S. federal government. As such, unlike Washington, Oregon, Nevada, Colorado, other places, uh, they haven't really been able to effectuate 
the will of the voters and the will of the people to have proper cannabis storefronts and reliable access to medical cannabis and very importantly the legal protection that you can use cannabis for medical or recreational purposes although some people would say it's all medical so like Washington DC uh, Guam legalized medical cannabis by citizen referendum in the last uh, couple years however the law is still sort of in limbo because there's this pressure from the Fed and the lack of initiative by the local government to stick their neck out and say, this is the will of the voters, we're going to enact this. As such, there's kind of this vicious cycle of it going back to committee, going back to new study, politicians protecting themselves, as is their want to do, uh, for the next election cycle by couching it and pushing it back. And then the naysayers come and say, this is bad for communities, this destroys communities, this is going to increase the drug problem because there's a problem, as I mentioned, about um, some other much more dangerous drugs. And then people come on and say, this is going to help with opiate and speed crisis. Uh, and it goes around and around. But in my digging this stuff out, I've come across a wonderful organization called Grassroots Guam, who are not just active, but very vocally active in their support of cannabis for uh, recreational and, and medical purposes in Guam. And as one of their initiatives, uh, uh, Andrea, who's the executive director, I think. I should, have, I should have made a note, right? Instead of making sure I had a smoke and a beverage and goats, I should have maybe made a note. I have one somewhere. Uh, <clears throat> appears regularly on a radio show called Let's Be Blunt. Cute name. It might even be in the ra same radio station offices as studio as my clip was originally recorded in. Anyway, uh, regularly she discusses with the host all about these different conundrums about permitting, oh, well, now there's, it has to be 51% locally owned. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Oh, no, now there's another gubernatorial election. I love that word, gubernatorial election coming up, and they've uh, brought all the candidates to task to ask them specifically what their intention is about enforcing the will of the voter and bringing medical and recreational cannabis into the mainstream on this island. As it is, Guam is a small island, and while people are growing outdoors, and likely indoors, although electricity is tremendously expensive and unreliable, so it's not really a good place to do that, but you know, it happens. Um, I grew a couple plants indoors in a bathtub. Not fantastically successful, I might add. Uh, but in order to effectuate and put these things in place to have legal dispensaries, it's really hard to launch that up in Guam you know, your neighbors know what you're doing. And building an indoor growing facility in a concrete bunker, you having to use a ton of electricity to run lights, isn't, and air conditioning certainly, isn't sustainable or environmentally wise there. But growing outdoors involves all kinds of other so-called security risks. So these folks from Grassroots Guam are trying to stick handle the public and the politicians through these conundrums so the people of Guam can have their Mm, their scant right to self-determination effectuated in the form of having safe and legal cannabis. So I salute you people at Grassroots Guam. Um, I enjoy listening to the Let's Be Blunt. They do it like a video cast of their radio show, one of those kind of things. You know, sports radio does this, where they just put a fly-on-the-wall camera in the radio studio. And it's quite enjoyable. It brings back a lot of memories about being in Guam. You know, Guam, it was a kind of a weird place to live. I have fond memories of another off-islander who worked on the submarine tour who uh, had a little rowboat and we would go up the Talafofo River and up into the jungle 
And that's where people are also up there growing weeds. So you actually have to be a little careful going up there because people think you're coming out, scout out their plots of grass, especially when you're an obvious off-islander. All that in mind, I encourage you to learn about the island of Guam and the people thereof, the geopolitical conundrum in which they are involved, and the hard work of grassroots Guam to normalize cannabis on this island. If you have any other questions about Guam, I'm happy to mm, riff on this with you. You know, since I've left Guam, most of the people that I meet that have some familiarity with Guam are U.S. military personnel. So you'll often see, if you live near a U.S. military base, uh, Chamorro stickers, this word Chamorro, or the words Hafadei, H-A-F-A space A-D-A-I, which is like their uh, standard greeting, aloha as it were, Hafadei. So there you go. That's Guam. Toke on people of Guam. I will see you again one of these years. And that'll be fun. All right, well, and then, okay. Well, well let's, I'll tell you what. Let's go into, uh, let's do some commercials right now, and then we'll come back. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, legalization and stuff All like right. that. Well, we'll and also, I want to say real quickly here that if you can't make it in on Sunday, or if you're just interested and, and you'd like to get a hold of the catalog, you can call us here at 637-6100, and we can put you directly on Dave's mailing list from here so so that you can you know get you know you can get booklets once the, once the catalogs yep. are ready to go we can have them in the mail for you and you can check them out yourself all you got to do is call us and tell us six three seven now's the time that i tell you very briefly that since i recorded this bit from japan not the part that was recorded in guam and blah, 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 they did have that other gubernatorial election and some changes in Congress. And this has, again, come to the forefront of the political conversation. And what I mean by that is there's now a Senate bill to bring recreational cannabis to a legal framework, and it's getting tremendous support. Fantastic. There's some young, new politicians leading the way on this, and there was a change in the governor's office. Uh, so it's getting a lot of support, except for from the Guam Vitters Bureau. Now tourism being a big deal, although it's been in decline the last bunch of years, so they go, oh my God, we need to build up tourism again. What do we do? Some people are saying that, well, we should use cannabis as a way to increase tourism. And other people are going, oh my God, it's going to ruin the family-friendly reputation that Guam has. I don't know who in Guam Visitors Bureau thinks that Guam has a family-friendly reputation. It's the discount Hawaii, as it were, and I mentioned earlier about massage parlors and strip bars and gun shooting ranges. Now, that said, I haven't been to Guam since 1996, so it could be entirely different. <clears throat> so I'm mostly, uh, well, I'm completely speculating. Hey, this ain't journalism. Uh, so dig, that's going on like in real time right now in February 2019. And it'll probably be completely outdated by next month. And the other thing that's happened is Saipan, which is part of the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas Islands, which includes Tinian and Rota. Tinian is famous because that's where Nola Gay took off from. Saipan uh, so this, they have a, also have a relationship with the U.S., but a different relationship where they're not a territory, they're a, <laughs> they're a commonwealth. So it's, Saipan has a, a tourism industry, but they also have a big garment manufacturing industry. Some people might say sweatshop. In Saipan, they can manufacture clothing and put, the made on the US, made, put on the Made in the USA label, but without adhering to U.S. labor laws. Dirty secret. 
So there's many laborers, especially from the Philippines, they're working in substandard conditions, making your designer clothes. Anyway, the point is about Saipan is, and I, should, I really should have done some research, but again, I find myself on a tiny island with no internet. <laughs> and I don't want to wait another 20 years to release this. Uh, they have legalized recreational cannabis use because it's difficult to grow in these tropical environments in a controlled atmosphere. They it means they have to import. Canada now is, well, anyone who's paying attention to this knows there's all these conglomerates ramping up in the U.S. and Canada and Israel for uh, export. And so... They have a small legislature in Saipan, I think eight members, it passed unanimously to do this. It was a 30-day rulemaking period, not the one-year you know, stalling tactic that some states have used. So it should be effectuated by now. A quality documentarian would have done this research. I have not. But this makes it fun, right? Make your own adventure. Saipan, Guam, what's the status today? <laughs> Shamba Ranks, the, the reggae singer, was just yes. busted in Jamaica, <laughs> uh, in Jamaica. Uh, with like a quarter ounce and, and a roadblock, and uh, they fined him $2.50. Oh, my goodness. Fine. It, it came across on the newswire, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, he had to pay $2.50 fine and $23.50 in court costs. Oh, so my goodness. It cost him $26, <laughs> and I'm sure he's well, we feeling better, terrible about well, it we now. better uh, just pass the hat around and see what we can do to help uh, Shamba Ranks out. And Everybody. Out yeah, there, we're, we're I need TV you to donate. Infom- in TV infomercial with <laughs> Sally Struthers. Please, can't you just spare a, for the price of a cup of coffee? Yeah, this black brush from West Milan, you know, chilling along the hills, you know, with Uncle Weed, you know, yeah, man, good friend of mine, you know, yeah, man. Maybe we'll make things a little bit better, if not perfect. You've been shooting along.